Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 12th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Chris, my producer, Chris Berube, he was telling me about this TV show, The Great British Bake Off. And apparently what happens is when a contestant so badly embarrasses themselves, the hosts, who are kindly hearted folk, start singing copyrighted songs. And this way, the editors have to cut around it because they don't want to pay the licensing fees. And these people are saved the embarrassment. All right. With that in mind, I watched the Hannity interview with Donald Trump Jr. And I was thinking, Hannity, who I suspected was actually trying to help Don Jr. along, I suspected a sympathetic Hannity might have used this technique. For instance, during this exchange. When you read the parts about the Russian government or Russia supporting your father, did that put off any sirens in your head? I didn't know these guys well enough to understand that if this talent manager from Miss Universe, you know, had this kind of thing. So why do birds suddenly appear? Listen, if I'm Hannity, here's what I'm thinking. Oh, no, Don. No, no. Your, your defense is, look, this guy's a total loser. A guy who uses the phrase the crown prosecutor of Russia. But you know what? I'll take the meeting because you know what? Hey, it's not inspiring, Don. All right. Let's see what our curious interlocutor might intervene with next. Listen, I had I, been reading about scandals that people were probably underreporting for a long time. So maybe it was something that had to do with one of those things. I mean, this was her perhaps involvement with the Russian government. So I can't fight this feeling. No, Don, Don, Don. You do not want to say, hey, it might be from the Russian government. You want to say, I, as a private citizen, just thought I was meeting with a private lawyer who I in no way thought was connected to the Russian government. Oh, God, I am going to have to fire up the jukebox again, ain't I? This is pre, like, Russia fever. This is pre-Russia mania. You know, this is... ba 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 This does not make sense. Okay. Don Jr. is not technically damning his case or putting him one foot closer to jail, but he's making a terrible case. He's saying, this meeting was before everyone knew we had this meeting. This was, in fact, when I set up the meeting, we didn't even have the meeting yet. It's like Nixon trying to argue Watergate. Why would I think Watergate was important? Look, when we did the break-in, everyone just thought of Watergate as a hotel. I didn't know Watergate would become a scandal and the Democrats would keep talking about it. You got to remember that in the context of Watergate. Back to the interview and some more deep cuts. The pretext of the meeting was, hey, we have information. And there was, you know, some small size. I don't even remember what it was. It just was sort of nonsensical, uh, inane and garbled, and then quickly went on to, uh, you know, a story about Russian adoption and how we could possibly help. And really, that's where we shut it down, which is... Stop, collaborate, and listen. All right, bad choice of words, collaborate. But still, 
what you just said is when we were told it was damaging state-supplied APA research, we were interested, but then when the talk moved to adoptions, we got less interested. This contradicts your first day story that it was an adoption talk. And the reason that that was your story on day one is that it is a better story than, hell yeah, we want Russian dirt on Hillary. Oh, Don, I do not think there is enough cash in the Fox licensing coffers to cover all the stuff you're going to say. I just beg you from now on to listen to the sounds of silence. On the show today, I spiel about the final pawn to be sentenced in the Bridgegate scandal. But first, now you might think liberals are riding high with this Trump-Russia news, very short-term thinking. Ed Luce of the Financial Times and Foreign Policy is here to talk about his new book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically. The exterior, that's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. So normally in this space, I tell you sentences about what I'm about to talk about. Here, I'd like to just read some phrases. Welfare chauvinism. Oikophobia. Democracy is not the multiplication of ignorant opinions. History as contingency is a prospect that is more than the human spirit can bear. These are all words in Edward Luce's new book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. He's been on the show before. He's a columnist or bureau chief for the Financial Times, and I listen to him on the Editor's Roundtable podcast from Foreign Policy, and also Deep State Radio, which is the, uh, the, the offshoot, the angry offshoot, the This Land is Your Land to God Bless America of the FP Deep State Radio, a new podcast where they talk about foreign policy. Hello, Edward. Thank you for joining me. Great to be with you, Mike. By the standards of material comfort, and this is a point I've heard you make, things aren't so bad. Things aren't so bad when compared to the Great Depression. We really, as a people in the West, shouldn't be nearly revolting, and yet we are. Why? The level of comfort, the life expectancy, the ease of access to medical care, the fact that we can read and write, that we have penicillin, all of this stuff that we take for granted that's part of the birthright of anybody for the last two, three generations in the West is not something we therefore value very much. We're no longer surprised at what an extraordinary, surprising fact this is about human history. We have expectations that are very different to that, which is namely that we'll live like our parents did, 
with one of us earning maybe maximum two, we'll be able to afford big houses, pay for our kids to go to college, and it will be affordable, and that they're going to be earning more than us, and their children are going to be earning much more than us, and that this escalator will continue going. Now, the problem is it stopped this escalator for a lot of people. Now, for others, it's turned into a sort of super fast lift, a yeah, supersonic... a pneumatic tube to the top. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> which kind of makes it worse that ours has just stopped. If you get a, if you get a view of the tube, yeah. If you get yeah, a view yeah, of the yeah. tube. And so it's about frustrated expectations. Um, and I think, as I say in the book, you know, if Queen Victoria could see what the, you know, poorest, um, socially most excluded person in Britain could get for free at the point of access from the National Health Service, she would be deeply envious. But they're not aware of that. They can't hear Victoria expressing her envy. And so you point out there is inflation and there is also the basket of goods where we determine how affordable products are. Refrigerators and televisions are extremely affordable. But there are other indices like the toil index. And, you know, you point out that healthcare is something like six times as expensive as it was 20 years ago and a college degree is so much more expensive is there a reason is this just kind of bad luck why the consumer goods are so much cheaper these material comforts but kind of the important things the building blocks of a life like healthcare and a college degree are so much less affordable I don't think there is. Um, I, I think, you know, the other thing that's become dramatically more unaffordable is property. So anything where the demand is great, but the supply is scarce, have gone through the roof. So apartments in Manhattan on the Upper East Side are in the same category as a Yale degree. Yeah. Um, or indeed, you know, as your health ch- annual health checkup at the Mayo Clinic. Education and healthcare to get good human care from good uh, medical staff and doctors is is a scarce good. That is true. But as you note, we seem to have lost the pioneer spirit. We're no longer moving when economic prospects in one area are bad. So I, I wonder, will the history of America be written as, yes, they went into a terrible economic doldrums, but half of that was because no one wanted to move to Nebraska. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would uh, hate to show any disrespect to Nebraska. So <laughs> I'm not going to say anything um, All you know, the about not ball, moving. Every, vast swaths of the Midwest. Yeah. Indeed. Um, but uh, there is definitely a slowing down of the American restlessness. Your chances of moving are way lower than they used to be. That might be partly because you, you've got two career households now. Um, and so it's far more difficult to navigate it. It's partly because America's getting older. And when you get older, you, you tend to move less and you, you're less likely to start a business as well. It's not just about moving. The slowing restlessness mm-hmm. manifests itself in many ways. But I think it's also about the sort of sapping of the spirit that comes with this stagnation that we're talking about. And I liken growth to being the West's secular religion. And if growth goes, you know, people kind of drift into agnosticism, atheism. There's a certain energy that goes amongst large sections of the population. If they don't believe that they have agency and polls of America versus the rest of the world, one question that Americans do, I don't know, so much better or poll so much higher at, at is when you ask them, do you think people are the authors of their own fate? Historically, Americans say yes, you know, in the 80s or 90s. And even Britons say no by 60. And you know what? They might be right. 
Everyone might be right, or at least America used to be right about that. They might be. I mean, I think there is such a thing as a useful lie or at least a useful self-deception. Yes. Because it's energizing. Yeah. If you believe you are the author of your own fate, you're going to do something about it. Yeah. And it it needs to be, the, the ballast needs to be that you could point to evidence that it's true, but it also the belief, which leads me to the question. Do you think many of our uh, problems can just be reframed, reconceptualized? You don't have it so bad? Or it's just natural that if we don't see the elevator going up and we don't think our, we're going to be as good as our parents uh, had it off materially, we won't say, hey, we got it good compared to Queen Victoria. We're always going to say, no matter how inspirational our leaders are, we're always going to be dissatisfied. Yeah, and that's a really good question, which I wish I could give you a pat answer to. I do think there is some evidence that the younger generations, particularly those who've come of age since 2008, are more realistic about the world they've come into. They have lower expectations and therefore seem to be less politically angry. There's not actually that much hard evidence for this, but it does certainly point a way to how we acclimatize to a world of slower growth, which is what most of human history has been. And it's still growth we've got. The real question is how we spend this growth and whether we're able to to distribute it in a slightly more intelligent way than we do at the moment. Because we do redistribute wealth right now, but a lot of it's redistributed upwards. You know, the larger your McMansion, the bigger your mortgage subsidy. There's an awful lot of public money disguised spending because it comes through tax subsidies. But it's spending nonetheless, has exactly the same impact on the federal bottom line. There's a lot of money there that is essentially subsidy for the wealthy's college college loans and their homes and all kinds of other things they don't need to be subsidized for. So if we have a more intelligent direction of our subsidies, we can live with this kind of growth and actually thrive, I believe. I think a large part of why there is such income inequality, I mean, it's because of the tax code and because of incentives, but it's also due to things that are not immoral. Um, It's due to the fact that Amazon's this fantastic company and the few people who got in on the ground floor are going to do really well. It's not exactly winner take all, but it's winner take most. And because America has built its economy, uh, most capitalist countries have more or less embracing that idea. We're going to get that. So how do you rewrite that? Do you rewrite that with taxes? Do you rewrite that with laws increasing the uh, social safety net? How do you make it so that brilliant companies, which pay their employees so much more because their employees are so much better and so much more productive, don't create this inequality situation that we're seeing? So one of the reasons we live in a winner-takes-all superstar earnings kind of world is because we are in a world economy. Having national taxes are more easy to evade or avoid than they ever have been. Capital just shifts elsewhere. People, talent just shifts elsewhere. So it's very difficult for tax to be the full answer. But the tax system as it stands, you know, should not exist. It's like the old sort of joke about asking for directions. You wouldn't want to start from here. This is not a good tax system. This is, uh, it's called the retreat of Western liberalism. It was good to reacquaint myself with that term. Invented by Fareed Zakaria, right? Yeah, well, he talked about a liberal democracy. Liberal democracy. Which was a great, a great, um, a great distinction because I think we always used to just interchange the words liberal and democ- liberal in the 
Western sense, yeah, and democracy, but they they are two different things, and it was understandable, especially when most democracies were liberal, and then people, clever, evil people, began figuring out, oh, you could have a vote, and maybe even actually count the votes. I bet they actually count the votes accurately in Russia. Doesn't mean it's a real democracy or a liberal democracy. A very good way of putting it: if the media is controlled, the message your voter is hearing yeah. is um, being manipulated with psychological warfare tactics. Or if there are no alternatives, if you arrest all your opposition or denigrate them before they even have a chance to actually earn someone's vote honestly. And they then can't seek recourse in the courts because the courts are packed with people, you know, who are cuddly with the regime and so forth. If you don't have all the apparatus there to prevent a tyranny of the majority, then you you kind of have democracy. Yeah. But it's not going to be a democracy for very long. Is populism, by definition tied up with illiberalism? Does it have to be illiberal? No. And, the, you know, the history of the term in America, it, you know, makes it impossible to say that because you have left populism, right populism, that, you know, neither of which are inherently authoritarian. What I preferred to look at is why populism in the anti-establishment sense since 2008 has tended to be on the right mm-hmm. and not on the left as, a, as opposed to, you know, 100 years ago. In the early 20th century, it was as much on the left uh, as it was on the right. And I think one of the reasons for this is because the left was so, the new left, the third way after the 90s was so associated with the system that collapsed in 2008 that um, the left behinds, you know, felt they had nowhere else to turn. There was no center-left party representing them. And that would describe Britain very well. It describes America reasonably well. All right, let's do lightning round. Uh, I'll give you a couple quotes from the book, including the ones we teased in the intro. Tell us what they are. They're such good concepts. How about this? What do uh, what do Hungary and Botswana have in common? Hungary and Botswana have both ceased to be democracies in any meaningful sense in the last 10 years or so. And the other countries are Turkey, Russia. It's a new phenomenon. Democracies Turkey, Russia, becoming undemocracies. Yes, Thai, Thailand would be another. Poland is kind of on the brink. Venezuela is a more obvious one. And great, great. We got a bunch of those in NATO, by the way. And, you know, I mean, we're not far off with the Philippines. I mean, liberal democracies don't remain liberal democracies indefinitely. They're in transition. And I think, you know, some of these countries we can see now we're in transition to autocracies. What does Colombia have in common with Andorra? (laughs) These are the only two countries in the world where opinion polls say that people define themselves first as international citizens rather than citizens of their own country. And I think, you know, they're kind of the big exceptions that prove the rule. Andorra, because it's smaller than my fingernail, there's like 80,000 people living in this sub-Pyrenees country. And Colombia, because... Well, you know, it's been sort of uh, killing fields for quite a long time now, and you probably don't feel great sort of warm, gentle feelings for your homeland if you're Colombian. Welfare chauvinism, what's that? So this is the right in Europe, the far right, uh, Marine Le Pen's party in France, UKIP in Britain, discovering that if they talk left economics, if they talk big government spending and defense of the welfare system, they suddenly like triple, quadruple their voting base. And that's the sort of real cognitive breakthrough the far right have had in Europe. And it's sort of based on the idea that, which is understandable and intuitive, that if you've been living to a country and paying into the social security system, then there is a quid pro quo there when you draw your pension. And if somebody turns up from a foreign country and doesn't speak your language and immediately they're drawing the same pension, you feel resentment. So it's a very clever way for the far right to 
steal the clothes of the left and become more relevant to the washed up working classes. And finally, I love this word, oikophobia. Is that it? Oikophobia, Oikophobia. Yes. So oikophobia is uh, the opposite of xenophobia. Oikophobia is fear of people near you. Xenophobia is fear of people who are coming from afar. It was coined by um, an English conservative philosopher called Roger Scruton to describe the elite liberal mindset that it's not people in Bangladesh or Botswana or wherever that we fear. It's people, you know, in West Virginia. It's people in the Appalachians, uh, Appalachians yeah. or in the British sense, it's people who don't live within London. Up north, people up north. It's the oiks, the unwashed, the unlettered. Edward Luce is the author of The Retreat of Western Liberalism, longtime editor for the Financial Times. Listen to him on the Editor's Roundtable podcast and the Deep State Radio podcast, speaking lucidly. Oh, if that was a pun about your name, I'm sorry. Thank you, Edward. (laughs) Thank you, a delight. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. So by now you know that Chris Christie spent the last two days on the radio station WFAN talking to sports talk enthusiasts in anticipation of this stint. Right here on The Gist, I did a show that previewed what the governor might face. This actually happened. Here's a clip from uh, last Friday, I think's Gist. Stephen Lodi, what do you think of Tim Hardaway's contract? Uh, yeah, I think the Knicks are. Get your fat ass off the beach, Christy! All right there, Steve. We got to leave it right there. All right, let's now go to Bob. All right, that's what I thought might happen here in real life is how the second call went for Chris Christie. Next time you want to sit on a beach that is closed to the entire world except you, yeah. You put your fat ass in a car and go hey. to one that's open to all your constituents. Uh, well, you know. Not just you and yours. Interesting. Whoa, Mike, you're so prescient. How'd you do it? Well, through careful observation of New Jerseyans and their natural habitat, combined with the understanding of the intellectual salon that is sports talk radio. I mean, guys, this one was not hard. I'm also going to guess that Politico will sometime in the future run a story with the phrase, an embattled and embittered president has taken to raging against the television set in a peak over coverage of a roiling Russia scandal that seems not to go away. That is a story that I predict you will see in the future, past, prologue, etc. Also, I am going to guess that Melania Trump's cyberbullying initiative is not going to have a gigantic discernible effect on the behavior of the internet. I just do not think that one day people will talk about internet culture pre the Melania plan and post the Melania plan. No one will say, really? People acted like that on the internet? And then someone else say, well, you got to remember, this was before Melania. Here's another prediction. We're not done rebooting Spider-Man. In fact, by 2021, 
approximately a third of the way through the new Spider-Man movie that comes out that year, they will recast the movie and it will star a different Spider-Man. And maybe at one point he'll go inside a CVS and there'll be a smaller CVS inside that CVS and that none of the automatic checkout machines will work in any of those CVSs. I only say this because I'm a seer. But I don't want to just take a victory lap in this space. I'm here to offer Chris Christie-related practical advice. In a segment we're debuting today called Mike Help Set Sentencing Guidelines. Now, if we're talking Chris Christie and the lack of popularity thereof, we're talking about the Bridgegate scandal, when his minions purposefully caused traffic jams on the Jersey side of the GWB to punish political foes. Two aides have already been sentenced in this affair. Let's check in on what the jail terms for Bill Baroni and Bridget, yeah, great, right? Bridget Kelly were. They were sentenced separately this afternoon. Kelly, a mother of four, and the governor's former deputy chief of staff, given up to 18 months in prison. Baroni, a former Port Authority executive and a longtime friend of the governor's, sentenced to two years behind bars. But today, David Wildstein, the Christie ally and mastermind, we use the term loosely, of this plan, escaped jail time. Again, just moments ago, a judge sentenced David Wildstein to three years probation. He will also serve community service and pay a fine. But is that fair? No jail time? Well, that's why we're debuting. Mike sets federal sentencing guidelines. First of all, let's take into account the realities of prosecuting the case. Here is the federal prosecutor explaining why, not unlike the first responders trying to get to motorists having heart attacks, Wildstein walked. It is a fair and appropriate system in which people who substantially assist the government in the investigation and prosecution of others receive some tangible benefit for this. People don't come and cooperate because they want to necessarily be great Americans. Okay, I understand the principle, but let us be a little more scientific about exactly how fair it is. Let us take into account the costs to society. The bridge closure was part of a bullshit traffic study. It was just meant to create traffic, and it did create traffic. But guess what? To further the fiction that it was in the name of science and a study, they actually did conduct the study. Here's what they found. The delays created 2,800 hours of traffic delays a day. These are called vehicle hours. So number of cars waiting multiplied by the average wait time, and you take into account what the wait time usually is. 2,800 hours of traffic delays. Now, let's be clear, they diverted lanes, so they opened up I-95, and on the highway, it saved 966 hours. So when we do the math, it was 1,834 vehicle hours wasted. But the thing dragged on for four days. So that's 7,336 hours wasted. That is 10 months, we should say, Wild Thing got 500 hours of community service. We will deduct that. And that is being generous. I mean, if you were waiting in traffic for an hour, would you feel better if I told you, don't worry, four years from now, the guy who caused your problems is going to be picking up discarded Slurpee cups on the Garden State Parkway for the same hour that you waited. You probably wouldn't. But as Mike sets federal sentencing guidelines as an effort to temper justice with mercy, we will allow it. And we come to a final figure, 6,836 hours. That is 285 days. It's roughly nine and a half months. Now, in an effort to make the punishment fit the crime, I do not say that David Wildstein needs to do his time in the clink, the big house, the who's gal. In fact, here's what I say. He should serve his time sitting in a car stuck in traffic. 
What we do is we set up a Chevy Volt because I'm sensitive to emissions. We put it right outside the prison and have him sit inside it for nine months. And he can adjust the car seat if he wants. He could turn on the windshield wipers. He could text people via the iPhone. I'm fine with that. He just can't leave the car. Or if he does leave the car, the clock stops and it starts again when he climbs back in. He could pee, but it'll have to be inside that bottle of Gatorade he brought with him. In fact, I'm even going to let David Wildstein listen to the radio. Possibly local sports talk host and his former patron, Chris Christie. Oh, no, wait. The Supreme Court just said that would be cruel and unusual punishment. And that's it for today's show. Chris Brube produces The Gist and wants you to know that he likes the new Degrassi Junior High better than if I was a sculptor, but then again, no. Mary Wilson is a Gist producer and has some interesting theories on why Andrew Garfield's statements about angels in America might be a very good old man river. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, stands by Lena Dunham on the Lammy issue. You see, dog abuse in our society, I want to take you to funky town, the gist. Cargo shorts, they're not only a fashionable rah-rah, ah-ah-ah-ah, ah 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 ah